Welcome to the broadcast. This is Mike Lee's In Context. And before I introduce our guest, who many of you know, I was talking to a local pastor friend of mine here in the Nashville area, and I said, listen, I've got a great four-week study you need to get in front of your congregation by March 3rd. And so I sent him the link to this press kit. He wrote back in 1997, a teenager called me about booking a concert with a hip-hop group I was working for called Grits, <laughs> Grammatical Revolutions in the Spirit. I kid you not, he writes. I do not contact with teenagers. I had a rule that I wouldn't write a contract with someone I wouldn't loan my car to. <laughs> but this kid, he was sharp as a tack. He managed somehow to win me over. So I took a flyer and a concert packed. He absolutely knocked it out of the park. The teenager, Jeremiah Johnson, and he's been a good friend ever since from Darren Tyler. <laughs> oh, that's right. Little is much when God's in it. <laughs> well, great wow. to see you again, friend. Great to see you, brother. Dr. Easley, it's such a privilege to be on your program. I always check my notes because you ask the best questions. Right, You're right. a great thinker. You know, I'm a regular listener of In Context, so just thank well, we you appreciate for your ministry. That. Thanks. Let me tell folks a little bit about you who may not know you yet. Jeremiah Johnson earned his PhD. He's a New Testament scholar, and his real joy is in equipping believers to think critically, a.k.a. his ministry, the Christian Thinker Society. He's the president of that organization. He's authored 12 books or co-authored. We're going to talk about his newest book in just a minute. He's passionate about equipping believers to not only think critically, but to intellectually understand how to talk about faith and Christianity, which is needed more and more as our culture rolls by. He's a regular contributor to Fox News, CNN, USA Today, Relevant, Christian Post, on and on they go. He also serves as a pastor of apologetics and cultural engagement at Prestonwood Baptist Church, way north Dallas. He's a dean of spiritual development there as well. He and his wife, Audrey, have five amazing children, and I've been around his kids and his firstborn. <laughs> his beautiful daughter was with yep. us in studio a while back. The four recent books I want to talk about, Unanswered, Lasting mm -hmm. Truth, for trending questions. I think we had you on the podcast mm -hmm. on that book, Unimagined, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity, Unimaginable, and then Unleashing Peace, Experiencing God's Shalom in Your Pursuit of Happiness. And the newest book, which is actually two books, we're going to talk right. about that, is called Body of Proof. And it's a partnership of Bethany House Baker Publishing and then Lifeway, I understand. That's right. So this is an interesting combination because it's a textbook, but also a four-week study, and we're going to tell you all about it, but I want you to mark on your calendar. Easter is March 31st this year, and so if you're watching this podcast or listening before March 3rd, you could jump on, get the book and the study guide, and you could grab some of your friends, some of your neighbors. This would be a fabulous neighborhood study to do. Invite your Christian, non-Christian friends. Say, let's do this together for four weeks. And you might be amazed what God would do mm -hmm. with that tool. So with all that rambling introduction, Dr. Jeremiah... Great to have you on the broadcast again. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Dr. Easel. I'm excited about our conversation. We've joked about his name. I wish my name was Jeremiah Johnson, but for a different reason, but we'll <laughs> leave it at that. So first of all, I want to back up and ask the question. You did some filming in Israel, and I'm very covetous and envious of that. Tell us a little bit about the backstory for going over to Israel and filming some of these studies. 
Well, I like to say, you know, unlike any other religion or belief system in the world, archaeology is Christianity's closest cousin. Unlike any other religious text, and most religions have a rational basis, a text basis, a book or a text that clarifies the religious beliefs, Christianity on purpose intersects with the world around it. You know, you can't open up John chapter 11 without Luke giving you the distance from Bethany to Jerusalem. Same with in the Gospel of Luke. So many believers love the resurrection of Jesus, but unfortunately, Dr. Easley, and I'd love to see if you agree, the resurrection of Jesus is understudied and underpreached. And most Christians really can't give a solid answer, A, why they believe evidentially the resurrection of Jesus occurred in space and time, why it's a real historical event, not a myth, fairy tale, or legend, but even more so. They can't really talk about what difference does it make? I mean, yeah, I know I'm going to go to heaven someday because I've been saved through Jesus' resurrection, but what is the key of the resurrection of my life today? And so the only way we could do this, Lifeway, the Lord blessed uh, Body of Proof, the trade book originally published a year ago, and Lifeway said, hey, let's make a resurrection Bible study. Now, this is hard to believe because Lifeway has been around for over 100 years, but they've never had a Bible study focused on the most important event in Christianity, the resurrection. They have an Advent study, but if you look in their catalog, they said, Jeremiah, we're shocked too. doesn't mean they haven't mentioned the resurrection, but an actual <laughs> resurrection yeah. seasonal Bible study. And they said, would you write it? I said, yes if we can film it in Israel. You know, I don't want to do what all those trendy Nashville people do, your neighbors, and go to some abandoned warehouse somewhere and, you know, teach hey, the hey, Bible. Hey, hey, hey. Be nice, um, be nice. <laughs> I, I want to go to the very spot. And so we flew right. over there. And it's really funny because my bags were lost I had to try to fit into clothes. We stopped in Spain on the way there just to change planes. And I, I realized I don't fit in European men's clothing. So I look a little funky and a few until my Bible. Or well, you know, my I, I got to mention when you were walking on one of those preview shots, I thought, wait a minute, he's really hip with those pants, baby. <laughs> it was bought in some Madrid airport. So we finally get there. And I have to tell you, here's the fun thing about it. We filmed at all of the resurrection spots of Jesus in and around Jerusalem. And when I say we filmed, it's fast moving. You're over my shoulder. There's two drones yeah. overhead. There's four cameras. And I'm talking about we went from Bethany, Lazarus tomb. We went to Dominus Flevit, my favorite view mm -hmm. of the Mount of Olives on the eastern side yes. of the Mount of Olives, which I believe is the spot where Matthew 27, other Christians rose from the grave, those first century Jewish Christians yeah. when Jesus did. We filmed at the actual road to Emmaus. A lot of Christians have only go to Emmaus and Icopolis, but we actually filmed on the road. And it's kind of fun. It sounds extravagant. It wasn't. We had to take a Hummer because we actually had to off-road to get to this very place that has six-foot-tall cylindrical Roman milestones. So we filmed on wow. the actual Emmaus road, not Emmaus itself, but on the actual road. And then I mean, thrill of all thrill. We filmed both at the Garden Tomb and at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And when I say we filmed there, I don't mean just we filmed on premises. We filmed in the tomb, like next to the very shelf where Jesus' body was raised from nice. the dead. And so it was incredible. And all of this was filmed as a Bible study. It's not for a college program. There are no prerequisites needed. It's all straight to camera like you and I are talking. It's like I'm taking you, your family, your Bible study group from point A to point B 
and just telling the story evidentially and then immediately applying it to our life of what does this mean today as a Bible study? So I'm thrilled with it. Lifeway is kind of like family. They can't get rid of me now. And I'm very involved in the editing process. So I am, I'm really happy. It's normally hard for me to watch myself preach. I actually hate it. Some of my Bible studies I've done, I've actually not even watched them. Don't tell my other publishers. (laughs) I can't can't watch them. It's awful. But this one I did watch because... It was so well done. And, and and what's cool about it, what I like about it, Dr. Easley, it's not overproduced. Like I'm in Bethany and I'm sweating. Like we didn't stop. You know, I'm in a real tomb. There is no airflow. My voice yep. is echoing. You know, this is a real thing. We're not pre- over. So it's not overly produced. And I loved it. So that's a long answer, but it was a really great experience. Let's get to some of the content you already mentioned, but is it important? And, you know, we're in a post postmodern culture We're you know, now, of course, the Progressive Christianity has become deconstruction and reconstruction and terms you swim in. But are you seeing trends that believers or Christians aren't sure about the importance of the literal bodily resurrection? I am, and it's very unfortunate. In fact, the resurrection has become a footnote, and it should be the focal point of our preaching and our teaching. When you open up the book of Acts— Every sermon in the book of Acts centers around the resurrection. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. We have over 300 occurrences of the resurrection. So we have more occurrences of resurrection theology and application than we do chapters in the New Testament. Unfortunately, many Christians, and I have the numbers to back this up, really only hear about resurrection at an Easter Sunday sermon or when they attend a funeral service. In fact, I would encourage, and I know you have tons of thought leaders that listen to your broadcast. When's the last time you taught a Bible study just on the resurrection of Jesus, all of its implications? There's a growing number, and I can quote several different citations. I actually just wrote a Lifeway Research article that's getting ready to come out based on this, that only 33% of Gen Z Christians think that the resurrection of Jesus really happened in history. There's a growing number in Britain. You think Great Britain was the gospel-sending nation for centuries. 25% of Christians there now think that believing Jesus physically rose from the grave is not essential. Bill Telford, who examined me for my thesis, who is a Gospel of Mark scholar in Britain, Fortress Press, he studied under the great William Barclay, Barclay Bible backgrounds. He didn't believe in the miraculous. A lot of people don't realize that. Bill Telford looked at me and said, isn't the resurrection just imaginative storytelling? Not really, based in fact and time. And I said, well, no, the evidence leads me to believe Jesus really rose from the grave. He said, well, I don't see it that way. And so we see this growing number of Christians who see it as a non-essential belief. But all we have to do, Dr. Easley, and this is why I love your program, you'll always take us back to the Scripture. In an absolutely devastating passage, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul answers your question. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're still in your sins, and we have no hope. And then in verse 19, it says, people should actually feel sorry for us believing this stuff if Jesus didn't really rise from the grave. And so I don't want to just fault Christians. I don't want to tar and feather it, because I do think it, as I, and I'm going to keep saying this, the resurrection's understudied, it's underpreached. And I think we can talk about the implications why. You know, it's interesting when you bring this up, because the miraculous it's been vilified forever. It's nothing new, not to get too far off base, but I'm a six-day literal creationist. Mm-hmm. And I'll often ask people who are old earth, I'll say, did Jesus turn water to wine? Did he walk on water? Did he give a congenitally blind man a new set of eyes? If you believe any of the, quote, miracles that Christ performed, why is it hard for you to believe 
he created the world and all that we see in six days, or that he raised himself from the dead. And right. if you extrapolate any of these miracles, to me, it's a domino effect. It's just a textbook. And to go back to First Corinthians, doesn't he say we're fools? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's my digression. No, Let's get back, to, back to your book. So talk a little bit about the tension, which you do in your resource, about faith and evidence and what mm-hmm. that means. We don't realize that faith is only defined by its object, okay? Like, I didn't wake up this morning and feel like being a Christian. In fact, I felt the opposite, to be honest with you. I wish I could cancel my whole day if I went with my feelings and just chill out. But no. No, I wait, you wouldn't this. be on the podcast if you did <laughs> I that. Come all on. the meetings I had the before cri- this. The Christian party is here right now, so get um, informed. You know, the the feeling, faith is only defined by its object. Faith is never just something we work up in and of ourselves. Okay, let me stop you, interrupt you. How many believers understand that, Jeremiah? Not enough, because we live in such a feelings-dominated culture. Well, it's the little train that could, right? I think I can't. Faith is an exercise of my faith, not trusting in the person and work of Christ. I interrupted. No, but you're making the point so well. And I think a lot of us think, well, do I have enough faith? Faith is never even complemented by if it's grandiose, 520% or 80%. You're either in or you're out. You either believe or you don't that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose from the grave three days later. And the really cool thing is faith, when you understand that it's divined by evidence, really takes this whole nebulous feeling factor out of it. Because some days we don't even feel like we're a Christian. It doesn't mean we stop being Christian. It means we continue to wrap ourselves in the truth of what we have believed. So there's a content element to our faith that has to be believed to be a Christian. And what's amazing about it, we see that Christianity provides irrefutable truth. I mean, the first four verses of Luke's gospel, literally Luke says, you can have a certainty about these things. Not a hope so, maybe so, but a certainty. And he doesn't point to a feeling. He doesn't point to some kind of esoteric secretive knowledge. He points at the facts of Jesus's resurrection. And I mean, there's so many passages we could go, Dr. Easley, like I'm thinking John 2 right now, where Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the disciples didn't get it until after he was raised from the dead. And so this tells me, too, that when I lock into faith in truth, faith in evidence, faith in the facts of the gospel, as J.I. Packer used to call it, we believe in facts of the gospel. That's what Packer said. When I realize that, I then interpret the scripture in light of that truth. And then things become much more clear. The skeptic is going to say, okay, I heard that, but where's your proof. You're talking about a literary document that, of course, believers hold variously as cherished, true. We believe it. We question it. It's myth. It's story. But a skeptic is going to fold his mental arms or her mental arms and go, yeah, but that's not proof. And this is where I lay out a body of proof, seven reasons, seven of what I think are the best reasons to believe. By the way, I want to add an eighth because I'm becoming more and more convinced about the Shroud of Turin, but that's a whole nother thing. In fact, in an interview, I totally play it off and say, I only deal in evidence, so I might even add an eighth. That's just a a sign of things to come. (laughs) We'll have to talk about that offline with Norman Geisler. Did a great job. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Go back to your four parts and the way you argue this. my seven best reasons, and the Shroud is not one of them, because I (laughs) do deal with so many minimalists. In my seven best best reasons, I point out, I think my favorite, there's really two. 
There is no psychological motivation to invent a resurrection narrative. Dr. Easley, if you and I were observant Jews in the first century, if we're following Jesus and we decide that we want to honor Jesus, our rabbi who died on the cross, we had no psychological reason to invent a narrative of him physically coming back from the dead. In fact, when we look at those resources at the time, 4Q285 is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. This would be the Essene community or the Qumran community. Their prophetic belief, and they were the most observant of the time, was that when Messiah returns, he'll kill the Katim, those are the Roman occupiers, he'll even kill the Roman emperor. There was no expectation, and we read Isaiah 53 now through the cross, but when you actually study the Jewish sects at the time of Jesus, very few held to that. Most thought the Messiah would vanquish a corrupt priesthood purify the temple from the Sadducees and Pharisees, and then also kill the Roman emperors. We see this play out in Matthew, I think it's chapter 16, verse 22, where Jesus keeps making these passion predictions that he's going to die and rise again on the third day, quoting Hosea 6, 2, and 3. And Peter tries to stop him and says, never, Lord. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. John the Baptist is in prison. Are you the one? Yeah. And the implication there is, I thought you were a revolutionary, who, by the way, is his relative. I thought you were the revolutionary right. to come and overthrow this corrupt system and become Messiah. Exactly. And so in Judaism, Judaism is a coherent religion. And Dr. Easley, if you and I were rabbis in the first century, just like Martha answered Jesus in John 11 and said, well, yes, Lord, we know he'll be resurrected someday in the resurrection, the general resurrection. We have no psychological reason to invent a narrative because Judaism didn't need it. Jesus could have been honored as a great teacher, as a great rabbi. And then that leads into my second, even more pointed message for the skeptic. And I have a whole chapter in Body of Proof on this, that if the disciples invented the Christian faith, and specifically if the disciples invented the resurrection of Jesus and the story behind it, they did a terrible job, okay? Because they were hitting, like, nothing they were preaching was palpable to a Roman audience. I mean, nobody believed in resurrection. You know, there was no famous Walking Dead show or zombies or anything like that. And if we really geeked out, the whole notion of the platonic immortality of the soul, the Socrates and Greek thought was so influential that the body was something evil to get rid of. Nobody would believe in a physical body that had been crucified. That's another significant point. Coming back to life, that's grotesque. So it'd be like you and I trying to invent, if we were two charlatans, trying to invent a belief system that people are going to really buy into. Man, if the gospel writers did that, they were bad inventors of a story. It also reminds me of Colson's book, Kingdoms in Conflict. He argues that the disciples were so inept and couldn't exactly. get their story straight. They didn't get and it. These guys scattered away. How in the world could they conspire to remove the body of Jesus, much less organize the way they did after? And if I can go a step further, Dr. Easler, you're getting me all inspired. You know, Josephus tells us that James, the Lord's brother in AD 62, it's why I always date the book of Acts early. Josephus in eighty sixty two says that James, the brother of Jesus, dies. He's stoned to death. Again, Josephus, not a Bible book, but a great first century historian. Yeah. He dies believing his brother is the son of God. 
Now, I have four sons. Three of them are triplets. None of them think the other one is the son of God. I can guarantee you that. And they would never die thinking that. We have to ask ourselves, because Mark 3 says that Jesus' family wanted to do an intervention on him. Mark 6 says his family didn't believe on him. John 7, verse 5, not even Jesus' family believed in him. And yet... A few years later, James is willing to die thinking his brother is the son of God. How do you explain that? Again, I'm not appealing to the veracity or reliability. I'm not even saying the Bible's inerrant. I'm just saying, how do you deal with these facts of hostile conversions? And I would quote Gerd Ludemann, who died an atheist. I would quote E.P. Sanders, certainly not a Christian. These biblical scholars all agree that the disciples all had experiences of seeing the resurrected Christ. They don't doubt the biblical narratives, and they're atheists and agnostic. Hmm. I mean, E.P. Sanders, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, his Jesus Quest stuff, he still says, we as scholars believe these disciples had experiences of seeing something. Now, we don't know what that was, but they did have it. And so you, we have to grapple with these things. No one is saying that it didn't happen, not even the atheist agnostic scholars. And so we have to grapple then with what are the implications of it happening? So you've addressed the proof, the body of proof as you understand it. Can a person be a believer who doesn't understand or grasp that Christ was resurrected from the dead? Absolutely not. And this is something I had to actually grapple with because in my mind, growing up in a Christian home, Dr. Easley, like... The thought of not believing Jesus rose from the grave was like, what? Like, that's a huge component of the gospel. And yet, as I already mentioned, when I was in Oxford doing my PhD, it was really the, and that was a non-confessional track. I mean, it was the first time in my life I came across people that could read the Greek New Testament way better than yeah. me. And they seemed to know all the same stuff I did, but they thought the resurrection's imaginative storytelling. And I remember asking Dr. Evans, my mentor, I said, how can these people be a Christian if they don't believe in the resurrection. And they would be offended. I want you to know me saying this, but Dr. Evans looked at me over Chinese and Oxford and said, well, they're not Christians. <laughs> I mean, it was an easy answer because again, when, you know, Romans 10, 9, you have to believe in your heart, Jesus rose from the dead, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you'll be saved. Mm -hmm. So no, we can't be Christians. And I've been amazed how many media members have questioned me about this. And I think it's just a sign of the times that no, this is an essential aspect I like how Tom Wright puts it. I mean, you know, you don't have to understand everything about the atonement. In fact, precious little, he says. But one thing you do have to understand, deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus are essential to believe. I have a friend, you probably know him, Dr. Philip Carey. Yeah. He teaches at Eastern, and he's written a little book on the Nicene Creed, which I've been giving away and studying oh, cool. with some I'd friends. Like to see that. It's a remarkable text, and this is 325 A.D. when the mm -hmm. Creed is originally written, and a lot of people grow up saying the Apostles' Creed or some iteration of that. He talks about some things that are so obvious, and I know you'd love this, but there was one I was going to read. He says, the Christian faith begins with the confession that Jesus is Lord and the faith that God raised him from the dead. Amen. He rose again, reversing his descent into the depths of death. And the rising again is what meant by the Christian term, resurrection of the dead. And again, it's one of these obvious truths for us as believers, but like so many things, we run over it quickly. We're not really seeing it taught well in churches, not to be hard on churches, but they're not. Yeah, no. 
this is my passion as a Christian thinker. I want to major in what the Bible majors on. I mean, we sure. see so many squishy middle evangelical Bible studies on secondary and third level things. You know, okay. I let me interrupt you again. Yeah. Let me, Doctor Johnson. What happened that the evangelical Protestant fundamental whatever category we want to use umbrella? What happened that they moved away from teaching Scripture? They moved away from the foundational. I mean life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's it's not even just post-modernity. It's, I call it experiential theology. Elisa Childers calls it progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. What, what was the tectonic pressure going on that finally burst through and these churches basically have become Methodist in their function? Yeah, they have become awe Christian. Anything goes. How I would answer you, Dr. Easley, is money took over in the Christian publishing world Four families started Christian publishing, what I call the West Michigan Dutch Mafia. You have Kriegel, Erdman, Zondervan, and Baker. These four start what is this empire called Christian publishing. But then you have secular corporations that begin to take over, like HarperCollins and others, that begin buying all of these publishing companies. And then they see that Bible publishing is a $2.5 billion business in America alone annually, And what you have happen then is you have the rise of the Christian celebrity culture that unless you have a movie about you or, you know, something that happened to you that made you famous, and I'm being very careful with my words here, and and we get you a ghostwriter and we pay for the ghostwriter and the book comes out in your name, and then we have a whole segment, and then we realize those are the only titles that sell. Meanwhile, Christian publishing is continuing to be condensed. What started as all these different great publishers is now really a couple of the big four. And unless you have a Christian celebrity behind you, they're not really going to publish you. And they're not really interested in things that don't sell. And I say this as an author now of actually 15 books. I mean, I deal with this all the time. And it's so frustrating to me because I remember when I first started out in ministry and all the doors that were slammed in my face because I didn't have a movie or I didn't have, I wasn't an athlete. And I'm not saying all of those materials are bad here in my heart, but you asked systematically what took over were dollar signs. You have like in Warner Brothers, you have their whole atheist track. And then the next level up is the Christian track. And I just know business decisions happen. I'll follow you on that. But I'm talking about the pulpits, the seminaries, and because they're still ostensibly a louder voice than the aforementioned empires or no? I think that right now what we're seeing happen and play out is unfortunately the dumbing down of the American pulpit. We've actually seen education criticized among a lot of those that are going into ministry that you really don't need an education. And they all have these great stories. And there are people that God is using tremendously today. I mean, some of them are dear friends who are pastors. They never went to seminary. But that is the exception, not the rule. Hear me when I say that. I mean, the rule should be a serious Bible training that prepares me for a life of ministry that is just all Scripture driven. And we've gotten away from that. I mean, we've just simply gotten away from that. All right. We could talk about a lot of things, but I want to get back to your body of proof book. One of the chapters that was intriguing to me is you talk about suffering. Mm -hmm. And this is your, I guess, number seven reason. Jesus' resurrection is the only basis for making sense of suffering. Help us out. Romans 8, verse 18, Paul, he says, I consider the things of this present time are not worth compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. 
And when you think that the Apostle Paul who writes that in that amazing chapter, Romans 8, he was often called the Job of the New Testament. He suffered so much that most of his detractors said, there's no way you can really be an apostle. You have so many problems in your life. And that's why Paul is remarking against like the quote, super apostles in his writings. And yet Paul was able to constantly lock into his Damascus Road experience. He saw the resurrected Christ. And I think Paul needed to be pumped up a lot because as I count it, Jesus revealed himself seven different times to Paul throughout the New Testament. He had to keep showing up in Paul's life and say, I'm with you. You might not feel like you have anyone else, but I'm with you. And that's the only reason Paul could say that I consider the sufferings now not worth compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. And Dr. Easley, you and I have had the honor to pastor many families that should not have had hope because of the experiences of tragedy and loss they've had in their lives. And yet they're able to keep going because they're not living for 70 or 80 years on this earth. They're living for the resurrection, knowing they're going to see those loved ones again, knowing that the promise that we're given with more frequency in the New Testament, more than two dozen times, is that the historical fact of Jesus's bodily resurrection and the future eschatological fact of my resurrection are linked. And that's a powerful promise to hold on to. And this, again, going back to the Nicene Creed, 325 or 352? I get numbers mixed up. 325. Uh, It brought them together. So you've got this construct confessional. This is the one of the paramount thesis is that he lived, he died, he was buried. Of course, they don't go on to say he was dead, but say he's buried. He suffered, was buried, and resurrected. And this wasn't even a debate. No. And... Now, the farther we get removed, I often say revisionists are the only ones who pretend to know the truth. That's right. We have to revise everything. You know, Columbus didn't, it was, it was the Vikings. It was, you know, the apostle Paul really wasn't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't get it. But when you come back to suffering for just a minute, that's where my mind went off. When you think of the Messiah suffering so that our suffering has got some purpose and there is a solution to that suffering, which ought to be the biggest Okay, that's pretty compelling. He suffered in my place on my behalf instead of me, so I don't have to suffer in like manner. That's right. And I can't explain it. I just have to believe it. I know that Jesus (laughs) did. And I don't have faith in explanations, as the great Warren Wiersbe said. I have faith in God's promises in the Scripture to me. And when I lock into that, and then when I see that throughout the, like back to the Nicene Creed, I mean, I think something that's lost in that. This was the first kind of big church conference outside of right. Acts 11 and 15. These guys were wounded when they walked in the room. I mean, these mm. guys limped in, hobbling. I imagine them having crutches, bandages on, scars. I mean, these guys had lived through the worst persecutions. And then suddenly Constantine's bringing them together and even commissioning Greek Bibles, like likely Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, to get commissioned and paid for. I mean, these guys believed this. That's I'm why serious. They, they're saying, you know, this is what got us through it, the deity, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's the yeah. only reason we're able to stand here today. A couple of things you do in this that I thought were intriguing is I'm reading over the four-week study as well as the galley. I like the way you organize this, and that's because you're a smarter guy than me. You've got these four primary parts, but you say the skeptic takes the microphone, which I thought was a brilliant way to begin this section. And then you have resurrection is an imaginative storytelling, the case against Jesus' resurrection, 
Let's stop there for just a second. So what are the arguments against the resurrection? Yeah, I looked into all of these. I was taught that if you're going to debate something, you need to present your opponent's critique as well as you can, as if you were the non-believer themselves. So don't do any ad hominem, just this is what they claim. And when you get to the end of it, you're like, is that it? Is that the best? (laughs) And there are four arguments against the resurrection that I get into in the body of proof, because I wanted people just to, I want to set the table for them. This is the case against it. And then you're the jury, you get to decide. And one of them is that it was a mass delusion. And that's originated by Garrett Ludemann, who I've already mentioned, that they all were tripping (laughs) to go back to Chris. You know, they were all just on something, this mass delusion, except the problem is you can't show that based on psychological evidence of that ever happening where you have all of these men, women, children, all ages, different places who all hallucinate the same thing, that the disciples stole the body. We have that same narrative going on, that they stole the body. Really? No, the the Gospels show us the disciples, that would have been the last thing. They did not want to be in proximity, as you said, with Jesus. And so I dive into those because what's fun about this is I actually wrote, I co-wrote with Craig Evans, a chapter for a philosophy of religion textbook published by Macmillan that is used by state colleges and universities, so secular places. And we called it the case for the resurrection of Jesus. It's about a 9,000 word chapter in a textbook, but they let us publish it. And I mean, here we are boldly proclaiming the resurrection, but I gave a brief survey. And then I actually talked about my interaction with this, even during my doctoral defense, when Bill Telford, who's a great, nice man, I mean, we still stay in touch, but I mean, summarized all of the German higher criticism that had been passed down to him that, oh, it's just imaginative storytelling. You really can't believe what you read in the Gospels, can you? And that's where I then back it up that the Gospels are phenomenal sources, but they're not even our earliest. We go to the Apostle Paul for the earliest source of the resurrection of Jesus. It's so interesting. I'm quite a bit older than your dad and I are about the same age. And as we look back on the, let's say, four decades, four plus decades of being involved in ministry, I've never seen a time where the vitriol and disbelief, and not just, you know, pejoratively, Dr. Johnson, among young Christians, but again, the church in America, we live in Middle Tennessee, and it's astonishing how the church has gotten so off mission, watered down. I was trained at a time where Mm -hmm. it was biblical exposition. You put your nose in the book, you taught the text, you went back into the context of the history, who the audience was, etc. This seems to be a relic now. It is. And yet, it's the only churches that are growing, in my opinion, the churches that still do the old school way that's done. And this is my little kind of quick comment to that, Dr. Easley, is there's a lot of heresy in the church. All it takes is Jesus in no context or the Bible in no context. And you, congratulations, you become a heretic. And so that's why we need to listen to your program more. And we need to actually listen to people that have something to say that have been taught. I'm not saying you can't learn from, you know, like my grandpa, sure. self-taught man, read his Bible through every 11 and a half weeks. I'm not saying that, but wow. we do need to recover the great intellectual tradition of our faith. As David Dockery says, we have to recover that. And the cool thing about Christianity in the early years, the apologists, the OG apologists, they outthought everybody around them. They were great thinkers yeah. and they were they were able to communicate those truths. And my message to you and why I'm excited about this Bible study and actually taking you by the hand of these places, there's a daily devotion 
traditional leading up to Easter in it as well that leads up right up to Easter. I want to show you that our faith, we're living in the golden age of the evidence for our faith. So mm. don't go to Google. Go to God's Word when you have a question. What a novel idea. What a novel idea. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so let's talk about pragmatically then. So you, you've already said it, but expand a little bit more. So I live in a cul-de-sac. I've got, let's say, eight or nine houses. I really don't know these people super well. We Maybe they walked our dogs or see each other taking the garbage in and out. You got this crazy idea. I want to see if I can get invite 12, 10 neighbors, maybe five will come. And I want to do four weeks. I'm terrified, Dr. Johnson. How do I start? How would I begin to have this conversation so that someone might say, that'd be interesting to do for four weeks? One of the ways I'd start is, you know, Israel is really in the news and everyone seems to have an opinion on it. They're fascinated about it. So let a friend of yours, Jeremiah, take you by the hand video. We filmed this right before the October 7 attack. Some people may never go to Israel now, unfortunately. They're too afraid to. So let first off, it's just total eye candy. You can start there. It's fast moving. There's an original score. It's two minutes here, three minutes there, five minutes there. Everybody wants to be educated. We do live in a time where even those neighbors who you meet taking out the trash, they want to feel educated. They want to feel resourced, especially with the rise of AI and artificial intelligence, machine learning, you want to know where you can get trusted, verifiable information. So I'd start there. I'd also, I would personally use C.S. Lewis. I mean, C.S. Lewis is still beloved and respected by and large by most people, even secularists. And as I put at the beginning of my book, I mean, C.S. Lewis said to preach Christianity is to preach the resurrection. And I would just encourage them that they don't have to have any prerequisites. You don't even have to believe in the resurrection. In fact, it's a great evangelism tool. And I'm seeing this happen. I've been tagged all weekend of neighborhoods. I mean, I've been delighted by this community neighborhoods. They're not even really a part of any church. They're just moms and dads who are coming together and say, hey, let's watch this. And the other cool thing about it where I've learned is it's only a four-week study. I used to do six, 12, 18 weeks, and apparently nobody has time for that anymore. So this one's just four weeks. So it's not like they're committing a whole baseball season to it or anything else because, you know, we're all busy Ubering our kids around. I mean, four weeks is attainable. Can we get together four times and do this together? Yeah, yeah. I learned years ago asking for people's opinion. You know, boy, you've got the right segue. Israel in the news, everybody has an opinion. What if we studied this guy, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson's book on body of proof, and let's argue about our opinions. Right. Because people like to give their opinion, generally speaking, and our culture seems to love to argue more and more. It just seems to be that's an apologetic thing, right? You've got to have a defense for what you believe. Where I fail is I'm not always the nicest guy. (laughs) Yeah, you just know the answers. (laughs) No, you're an idiot. Yeah, right. That doesn't go over very well. We're trying to share Christ with people. Well, well, final thoughts. Give us a a final thought and an encouragement on, you know, obviously you're very excited about the project as am I, but uh, for folks that are maybe, maybe a Sunday school class, maybe a curriculum, maybe someone's in an evangelism, a discipleship network in a large church and looking for something as a good tool to use, how would they find out about this? How would they use it? So I was doing a word study of my own Bible study because I like to see, you know, what words did I use the most of the in the four-week Bible study body of proof? And over the weekend, I was so excited to tell my wife, Audrey, the redhead, I said, honey, the word that appears the most frequency-wise and body of proof, it appears 143 times is the word hope. And mm-hmm. I was just delighted by that because I don't even think I was going for that. But as I finished it, I thought, wow, hope appears 143 times in my Bible study because... 
there are so many ways in which the resurrection of Jesus is the key to our hope. It's the key to our ethics. It's the key to that unlocks our theology. Every single theological doctrine is unlocked by the resurrection of Jesus. Whereas mm. if that didn't happen, you know, we really don't need to talk about that theological belief. And so if I'm a Bible study leader, if I'm a Sunday school teacher, I'm still old school and call it Sunday school. If I'm a facilitator or a class director, I'm going to lead with that and say, we all live in a time where maybe society has given up. People have largely given in despair. I want to see how specifically the resurrection of Jesus brings me hope today. That's, I think that's how I'd lead out on it. Dr. Jeremiah Johnson, his newest work is called A Body of Proof. There's a textbook along with a four-week Bible study, as well as videos that LifeWay has partnered with Dr. Johnson to put together. As always, all the information is in the show notes below. So if you didn't catch us talking about it, just scroll down wherever you've listened or watched, and you can find out. You can also order the book immediately anywhere books are purchased online. And so we encourage you to take a opportunity to do that. This is a time of hopelessness. And the debate in our culture, whether it's over the war in Israel, whether it's the upcoming election cycle, in my lifetime, I'm not seeing it so divided. Mm. We do need to be bearers of hope, and the hope is the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Johnson, thanks for your contribution, and I have nothing but high hopes he's going to use this in phenomenal ways for the kingdom. Always good to talk to you, Dr. Easley. Thanks for having me again. Yes, sir. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.